the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. Whether you're a veteran voice actor, just starting out, or don't even know how to set a level, we're here to help you avoid the pitfalls along your voiceover path to success. The VO Meter is brought to you by Voice Actor Websites, Vocal Booth To Go, Global Voice Acting Academy, JMC Demos, and Sennheiser. Meter is produced in part using Source Connect, made by source-elements.com. And now, your hosts, Paul Stefano and Sean Daly. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 51 of the VO Meter. Measuring your voice over progress. Our show today is featuring the awesome audio engineer to the stars, or to the audiobook stars at least, Amanda Rose Smith. She's based in New York. We'll talk to her about her process, uh, some of her clients, and how she's dealing with this whole COVID-19 crisis. But before that, a word from one of our sponsors. Walgreens, because it's flu season, you live in a place with doorknobs and handrails and, you know, people. You tried booking a vacation rental on one of those other websites? They don't always tell you everything. The stars take it to the red carpet. We are back live from the red carpet. California leads the way for change in America, and so does Kamala Harris. Rated M for Mature. Claire Redfield. And who exactly are you? So, yeah, what hashtag should I use to describe a grown man in a tuxedo wrestling a goat? And prior to 1933, many of them belonged to a variety of political parties that were now outlawed in Germany. This is the story of how Q got curly. Quinn was crazy about curls. Curly fries, curly straws, curly-haired dogs. Hey, Jay Michael here. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter Podcast. It's one of my favorites. If you're looking for a great demo like the ones you just heard, check out jmcdemos.com for more information. Awesome. Thank you very much, JMC. And I always wanted to say that on the podcast. I don't know if we have before. Probably. Because we're corporate shells. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And there's no shame in that, at least in my book. How do you think we bring you such wonderful content? Before we get to our talk with Amanda, it's time for our VO Meter reference levels. VoiceOver Extra brings you the VO Meter reference levels. Uh, seriously, guys, that's the best you could come up with? Hey, it's your show. So, Sean, do you have anything cool to talk about? Uh, more of the same. Uh, more auditions, more audiobook chapters. Oh, and I got my taxes done, so woohoo! <laughs> oh, really? Exciting. I'm taking full advantage of the delay and doing that later. So I, I'm actually sent all of my documentation off to a tax rep to have them help me and make sure, just because, like, over the last couple of years since I have income coming from various sources and I'm not incorporated yet, I, I really need some advice on whether, like, that's something I want to do or, I don't know, the IRS has been really finicky about whether it accepts my things on the first go or not. So I'm just like, help me through this, someone, please. Oh, really? And, have you been audited? No, not necessarily. Like, I, it, would, it would take multiple submissions before they would accept it. And then, like, I was just kind of in IRS limbo one, one or two years. So I'm just like, I'm tired of that. I don't know if it has anything to do with me moving from uh, Japan to here or what. But basically, I just wanted to sit down with someone and then make sure I'm getting the most out of it and, and what I can do. Like, should I incorporate? If I do, should it be an S-Corp, LLC, all that stuff? So I'm excited to have to have hold someone's hand through the process. Very wise decision. Let the pros do it. 
Yes, indeed. And it took so much less time, too. Instead of just, like, agonizing over a computer for eight hours, it spent less than an hour just gathering documents and sending it to them. It's much nicer. <laughs> Is somebody you can still work with virtually, or do you have to send actual receipts and documents? Yeah, you can work with them online. It's through H&R Block. I used to be a big fan of all of those ones that you can do on your own, like TurboTax or Tax Act and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of success with them in the past, but like I said, as I got uh, my income coming through various 1099 MISCs and stuff like that, uh, the IRS is like, uh, I don't know what to do with this person. So, yeah. <laughs> like well, it's you a good said, problem it, to have. Definitely helps. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're definitely. actually making money. And, uh, <laughs> yes, sweet. But then the, the government wants to take more, and I want to figure out how I can hold on to more. So there, here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anything else you want to mention? Well, keeping busy with auditions, audiobooks, and GVA stuff. How about you? A couple of things going on. I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, but if not, who cares? I'm going to promote it again. I did two more TV spots for the COVID-19 prevention campaign for the state of Maryland. And I was I received a text last night from one of my college buddies that said, Hey, I just heard you on uh, Channel 11, which is the NBC affiliate here. So that was a bit of news. I was not, I was not aware it was playing on other affiliates. When I initially talked to the production company, they said it was going to play only on PBS. And that was fine. And even this is fine, too. I charge them based on the, the usage for the region, not for um, specific networks or, or media. But it was kind of surprising to hear from a friend saying, hey, I heard you on, on TV, because that doesn't happen to me very often. I think the only time it's happened was when Stephen George texted me because he heard me on The Amazing Race. And you know <laughs> that happens mostly f to me for other people, other friends and colleagues, where I hear them and reach out to them. It doesn't happen that often to me, but that was kind of a cool thing to have happen. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because I think it was our sponsor, JMC, wrote a whole article about what kind of voices would be popular during this common cri or the current crisis, probably going back to that more mature, authoritative sound. I was like, Paul's got a voice like that. I hope he gets more work. Absolutely, baby. <laughs> this, is, this is my time to shine. <laughs> no, but it, seriously, it is, it is cool to have, that, to have that experience. And just like we talked about last episode, just be ready for when... An opportunity arises. What do they say? Luck is really just... Um... Luck favors the prepared. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Luck favors the prepared. Not the ones who can't throw out cliched phrases, obviously. <laughs> Why don't you make like a tree and, and get leave. the fuck out of here? Yes. <laughs> so I have that going on, and then I am three quarters of the way through my latest audiobook, hoping to finish that soon. I landed another audiobook just today with my partner, Avon Shore. So episode down the road, you'll hear a little bit more about duet and dual narration, but uh, I've been working on some projects with Avon Shore out in the uh, the Midwest area, Minnesota, and we just landed a book, a romance book about a hockey team in Philadelphia. Big stretch for me because, as you know, I'm from Philadelphia, and uh, apparently <laughs> so is the author. Player? What was that? I said, but are you a hockey player? No, but I was a big fan of the local hockey team, the, the Flyers, the NHL team. It turns out the author is actually also from Philadelphia, so worked out well. I don't usually do a whole lot of comments. This is an ACX book, and I don't usually do a whole lot of comments in the, the, the pitch area because, frankly, nobody reads it. I know from casting I don't read them very often, but in this case it worked because <laughs> Aben's Canadian and a huge hockey fan, and me being from the same area as the author really, I think, helped us secure the job. So we got the offer today, and we'll be working on that soon. 
Well, I, I actually like to touch on that sort of the um, the application process for maybe ACX or any other indie publisher. What do you write in those blurbs? Is it just like, thank you for the opportunity? And obviously you're not writing your bio out for them, but like... Typically I write nothing, honestly. And it's because... Really? Just leave it blank. Yeah, because I know from the casting side, when I, when I, when I cast a book on ACX and I see a big blurb, I, I don't read it ever. I might read the first sentence mm. and that's it. But most of the time, I'm just listening. I don't care if you have a pet dog or you like to take strolls on the beach. All I want to hear is your voice and how it sounds for the book. <laughs> That's really interesting. I try to keep it to like three sentences. You know, one one of the reasons I like I'm really grateful for my English language background is just you learn how to write concisely. So just try and say hello, why I think I'd be a good fit, in like three sentences or a small paragraph or whatever, and then. Just say goodbye and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, I think there's two schools of thought. One is that, from my side, from the casting side, you probably are thinking that people are not going to read it, and in most cases it's true. But from the other <laughs> side, there, there there are cases where it does make sense. And Avon, my partner, actually encouraged me to write a bit about this because because of her connection to the copy and her being an avid hockey fan, too. And it's a book about a hockey team. So in this case, it made mm. sense to write something out, and it does seem like it worked. And made a, we made a connection instantly well, exactly. to the and, and, and I think that's why people, where they go wrong, is that they just have this blanket statement that they copy and paste for everything. And sometimes that applies to, say, like commercial auditions or whenever like an online casting site has that kind of body of text you can use. And you just want to let them know you've got good equipment, stuff like that. But I find for audiobooks, it's really just, do you have a connection to the text or not? Like, you know, if if I do a lot of self-help stuff, I'm like, hey, I was an adult educator, things like that. I've got, a, like, a lot of experience in that area. And then that's it. And you have to get that up front quickly. So if you're going to write a note, make sure whatever you're going to say is in the first sentence or two, first two sentences. Don't write this long paragraph about how many titles you've done and where you can find demos. Get the relevant part up front quickly. So that's the audiobook I have coming up. And then finally, my work for Twin Flames Studios has kind of blown up. I'm working on three author-narrated projects now, two of which I'm recording remotely here in my studio. One is in New York City and one is in Florida. No, that's not true. New York City and uh, Colorado. And I'm recording them both over uh, you know internet telephony and recording them here and live booth directing, basically, so that'll be interesting. I've done one of those before, and it worked out quite well. book has, like, 17 reviews now, and all five stars, or four and a half to five stars, so it can be done, and I'm looking forward to doing those as well. And then one other book where, due to the internet speed and the internet lack of internet speed for his area, he's actually doing it himself. I coached him through narrating himself, operating Audacity with Punch and Roll, and he's done, wow. so far, the, the preface and the dedication. And it sounds pretty good. He's actually able to pull it off. No big gaps or any problems with the edits. So I think that's going to work, too. This is part of your new audiobook consultant like business. <laughs> yeah. Because this isn't the first time you've helped. I mean, you've, you've helped at least one other author before, right? Well, in person? Well, I, I was just thinking to some previous projects you've done before where you either had them record in your studio or you actually helped consult them and make their own. Yeah, so I've done it a couple times, two, uh, three authors locally in my studio, and then one over over the internet and one other consultant's job. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole other vertical market that if you have the, the knowledge and the, the facilities to do it, 
I think it could actually be become even more booming in this post-COVID-19 world because I don't think people are going to get back to normal, so to speak, for a long time. And I think this could be something that could really take off. So before we get to our interview with Amanda, we've got a short blurb for our questionable gear purchases. But before that, a word from one of our sponsors. Vocaboot to Go's patented acoustic blankets are an effective alternative to expensive soundproofing. Often used by vocal and voiceover professionals, engineers, and studios as an affordable soundproofing and absorption solution. We make your environment quieter for less. It's time for... Questionable Gear Purchase. Okay, so headphones, headphones, headphones. I put out a post on Facebook last week saying I need new cans, and I was talking about headphones, which is absolutely true because the pair I use inside the booth is completely worn out. I was doing a long coaching session, or I should say group workout last week, and by the end of the 90 minutes, I literally couldn't wear them anymore. I had one hanging off my ear, and I was alternating having <laughs> one ear covered because it was hurting so much. The The fake leather pads were completely cracked and worn off. And it's just something I can't really deal with anymore. So I really need to get yeah. rid of them. They're the, the longest piece of equipment I've held on to, I think. No, that is, definitely. <laughs> They're from the Scarlet Studio, which was the first ever piece of equipment I bought when I got into VO five years ago. It was that set that comes with the microphone and the headphones and microphone stand and a Scarlet 2i2. Not everything mm-hmm. else has been long gone, but this is the one piece of equipment I've still ha- I still have. So I'm not going to throw them out for nostalgia stake, but I need to replace them for mm-hmm. everyday use. I'm curious because to me they look kind of like rebranded like AKG 240s. Have you used both, or was it was that strictly like a Focusrite product? Well, yeah, the, the AKG 240s are what I use out in the editing area because they're open back, they're not as fatiguing, and they're very comfortable. They do look a lot like them, but they're slightly different because they're closed back. So that's why I have them in the booth because oh, okay. they won't yeah. pick up the the, the, sound, the mic won't pick up the sound coming out of them when you and I are talking or when I do coaching or live sessions. So I'm looking for something specifically closed back again. And uh, yeah, these have always sounded good. That wasn't the problem. It's just that they they hurt now that they're five years old. Mm-hmm. Well, that sucks. But uh, And for listeners, if you've been listening to us long enough, you probably know the difference between open back and closed back. But basically, closed back are just that. They, they're closed around your ears, and they don't they isolate the sound coming out of the, the headphones well enough that you can use them in the booth, and it's not going to get picked up by your mic or anything if you're monitoring yourself or being directed. While open back, I mean, you can use them, but you have to be much more mindful of your output levels so you're not like actually picking up any of that sound coming from the headphones into the mic but it better just to have closed back i'm a huge fan of like the biodynamic series the dt770s i have two pairs of those and luckily i haven't had to get anything else since but uh but paul you've had a hell of a journey trying to find some headphones that work for you yeah because i have a giant head we talked about i think if you if you're familiar (laughs) with baseball hats I wear a seven and a half size baseball hat, which is quite large. Oh, dang. I think it maxes out at like seven and three quarters in most stores. So I almost need like mm-hmm. a big and tall head shop to buy, to buy stuff. <laughs> so consequently, most headphones are too tight on my heads. I bought a pair of DT770s. I went on a long journey. I think we talked about it a little bit over the years when I bought the, mm-hmm. the AKG240s. So I tried the DT770s. They were too tight. My son has a pair of DT-990s, which I've also tried, also too tight. 
the one, the worst for me were the the Audio Technica ATH series, like the um, the fifties and the and the seventies, and the seventies. Yeah, so I tried three in that range, and those were the worst. Those were causing me pain almost immediately. So that's crazy. I mean, I know they they tend. It's very like compact, like. Um, almost like tension plastic for those ones. Yeah. It's like, and let it be said, I have a pretty big head too, so I was very surprised to hear That's you true. have this much trouble. Um, but, but yeah, I remember, because um, I was looking at the Audio Technica series when I was in Japan, because, I mean, it's a Japanese brand, so mm-hmm. they had it locally. And so I actually got to try on the 40s and the 50s, and both of those were too tight. But then the, the 70s were like, ah, this is great. Unfortunately, they were twice the cost. They were like $300 for something that, I mean, to me, sounds almost identical to the buyers. And I'm just like, that's half the price. But yeah. it's just really sad to hear that you had so much trouble. Like, even those ones were, were too large, or excuse me, were too tight. Yep. Another pair I like that I actually yeah. have here from our friends at Sennheiser is the HD25s. They are their, oh, yeah. they call their studio headphones. And... I was surprised because, um, well, they have a very small ear cup, so they don't actually cover my whole ear, and I think that's by design. They basically only cover the ear canal, and I was surprised how soundproof they were because they are closed back, but because they didn't cover the whole ear canal, I had I had the impression that they would leak or bleed sound, mm-hmm. but I used them for the last part of that workout I was speaking of because I literally was in massive pain, so I ran outside and plugged these in quickly, and they worked pretty well, and... They sound really good. So now I'm thinking maybe I might in- investigate more of the Sennheiser models, maybe the bigger cups, and that might help. Yeah, definitely. I had a lot of success with, um, uh, I actually won a pair of like the HD 280s. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're like, they're a $100 pair at Vio Atlanta. And those sounded really nice. Like they were only like $100. I think, I don't know if those ones are still around. I think the current model is like the HD 300 Pros. It's between $100 and $150. And honestly, if you spend that much on a pair of studio headphones, you're probably going to be good. Like whether it's the Sony 7506s, which I'm not a big fan of personally, or the Sennheisers or the Bayer Dynamics or the uh, the Audio Technica models. Anything in that 100 to $150 range is probably going to be fine. How was uh, the 280s on your giant heed? <laughs> on my giant heed? Yeah, it you was know, a little I'll bit trying to ask like, oh, Heed pants, no. Oh, no. <laughs> trying to cart that giant cranium about. Exactly. Um <laughs> Such a good film. Now you got me doing like spoken word poetry. <laughs> Betty, Wilma, <laughs> Josie, and those hot pussy cat. Again, it was a little tight, but the ear cuffs themselves were actually very comfortable, and and the sound was super duper clear. If, if budget is an issue for you, if budget is an issue, you heard Paul and I talking about the AKG 240s, which are like sixty to eighty bucks, and yeah. they sound amazing. Yeah, those are great. Those those are my favorite for. For editing, because I can wear those for hours and not have any sort of fatigue whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. They're, those are open back, so you might not want to bring them in the booth, but unless you're right. doing like punch and roll or a live directed session, it's not an issue. So one pair I was talking about on Facebook was the triple, the, the one more triple driver over-the-ear headphones. And you said you had tried those? Not the over-the-ear ones, because the... Um... The in-ear buds, uh-huh. uh, like they're not necessarily monitors per se, but they did have these like reference quality in-ear buds from Triple Driver that that George Whittem and Joe Cipriano were recommending a few years back. Oh, so that's what you were I talking had, about, okay? Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard of the over-the-ear model, but I mean, these are like, I mean, they look like earbuds, but they're supposed to be 
good enough for for like reference quality editing and stuff like that. And to be honest, I don't know if I got a bum pair, but they sound kind of bad to me. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I can't make a fair comparison because I only have the one pair. I, I would love to like send it to someone and be like, is it supposed to sound like this? I mean, it comes in a great kit. It's well designed. And it's got all these different sized ear attachments and foam and hard foam and stuff like that. And the ear tips do actually change the sound a little bit. So I might just need to do some more experimentation with placement and the different pads. But But again... I mean, if you're spending $100 on a pair of earphones, you want them to work. <laughs> yeah. And work well. I tried their double driver ones. They were a, a sale on Mass Drop a couple of years ago, which is now just drop.com. And I like them a lot. The only problem is I would I use them for uh, on the go, not editing, just on the go, listening like on my phone or the old office in my computer. And I broke the wire by constantly coiling it up and shoving it in a backpack. So the wire broke and I can't really use them anymore. Yeah, I don't know why they don't either give you, like, a good holder for those or they just don't make it strong. Because, I mean, that's what people do with them anyways. They coil them. They knot them. They yeah. they, don't, they don't always put the best care into them, you know. But maybe we're just too demanding of a user. Could be. So, listeners out there, if you have any recommendations for headphones, uh, put them in, in the comments of, of the episode links or on the Facebook page. I'd love to hear some recommendations for what you use. Yeah, and speaking of questionable gear purchases, as you might have noticed, Paul and I have been pretty good about that and haven't been buying too much extraneous gear. So, in lieu of dipping into our savings and breaking open the piggy bank, we want to hear from you guys. Why don't you send us, like, a short three to five minute mp3 of your questionable gear purchase? We'd love to hear about it. And we'll play so it on the show. Send those. Yeah, you can be on the show. So, yeah, if you want to send us those questionable gear purchase stories, just send us an MP3 to either Paul at paulstefano.com or Sean, S-E-A-N, at dailyvo, that's D-A-I-L-Y-V-O.com, and we'll put you up on an episode of the show. So with that, it's time to get to the interview portion of this episode with Amanda Rose Smith. As a voice talent, you have to have a website. But what a hassle getting someone to do it for you. And when they finally do... They break or don't look right on mobile devices. They're not built for marketing and SEO. They're expensive. You have limited or no control. And it takes forever to get one built and go live. So what's the best way to get you online in no time? Go to voiceactorwebsites.com. Like our name implies, voiceactorwebsites.com just does websites for voice actors. We believe in creating fast, mobile-friendly, responsive, highly functional designs that are easy to read and easy to use. You have full control. No need to hire someone every time you want to make a change. And our upfront pricing means you know exactly what your costs are ahead of time. You can get your voiceover website going for as little as $700. So if you want your voice actor website without the hassle of complexity and dealing with too many options, go to voiceactorwebsites.com, where your VO website shouldn't be a pain in the you-know-what. All right, everybody, welcome to the interview portion of this episode of the VO Meter. Today, we're pleased to welcome Amanda Rose Smith. Hi, guys. <laughs> so Amanda grew up in rural New England, where she learned early on to amuse herself through music and stories. She first became interested in film music as a kid when she discovered herself humming movie themes more than pop songs. Ever since then, she's been fascinated by the way in which music and sound interact with other media. Amanda was originally musically self-taught, but continued on to graduate, to graduate from Smith College with a degree in classical composition and New York University with a master's in music technology. She possesses a wide range of skills needed in today's fast-paced audio world and is well-versed in every aspect of sound production. 
from the words or notes on the page to the recording, mixing, and mastering processes. She is capable of delivering a finished product that is finely crafted at every stage of the production. Amanda's music and sound work have won awards in various independent film festivals and game awards ceremonies across the country. She has also recorded, directed, and edited numerous Audi-nominated and winning audiobooks. Amanda is currently the head of the audio department at Serial Box, so please join me in welcoming Amanda Rose Smith. Hey, guys. <laughs> How's it going? Great. It's great to have you, Amanda. How are you doing? I'm good. Self, you know, luckily, when you work in our field, a lot of us are already hermits that spend so much time alone at home. Mm-hmm. So, what are you uh, talking about? <laughs> uniquely qualified for our current situation. I exactly, feel like. exactly. So we're really happy to have you, and we did touch upon it a little bit in your bio just now, but we'd love to hear more about your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So as you said, I was a music major, so I've, I've been a musician for pretty much all of my life. Um, and that's what I went to college for originally. But while I was there, my work-study job was actually working for the Office of Disability Services. Um, and what I used to do is I had one of those old little mini cassette tape dictator or uh, dictation, sorry, uh, takers. And what I used to do is I would be assigned a couple of students who were blind or dyslexic or had other sort of reading issues. And um, I would read their weekly assignments onto these little tapes and sort of make um, low rent audiobooks essentially for education. So that was sort of when audiobooks and VO sort of first got on my radar. And I did that the entire time I was in college and ended up um, sort of running that program there and, and getting stuff onto tape for various people. And then I came to New York to go to grad school. Um, basically, I realized that as a composition major, it would be very difficult to enter the workforce with only that set of skills uh, without, you know, like family money. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of us who are artists feel that and have survival jobs and that kind of thing um, because I had already gotten into recording my own music and sort of delving into that. I thought maybe I could augment my musical skills with some technical skills. So I came here and I went to NYU uh, to learn more about recording. Um, And I completed that program. And wouldn't you know, right before I wrote my master's thesis, I saw, of all things, a Craigslist ad that was saying, do you love to read? Are you a recording engineer? And I was like, both of those things are true. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tell me more. Um, And it ended up being a job for the uh, American Foundation for the Blind doing NLS books for the Library of Congress. Wow. Uh, So that was my first like official audiobook job. But then they went out of business 10 months later. (laughs) Not the whole foundation, just the studio that I was working at. And then I ended up a few months later at a post studio doing post-production for film um, and television. And they started doing some audiobook work. And I got onto the commercial side of audiobooks. And then I worked there for like five years and then I went freelance and I did that for like five years. And then I started with Serial Box and here I am. (laughs) That's great. So you mentioned Serial Box obviously is what you're doing now. So what does a typical workday for you look like? And even outside of Serial Box, the five years you spent being freelance, what are some memorable projects you'd worked on or you'd like to share? Oh, so many. I mean, at this point, I've probably worked on something like 1,200 audiobooks. Wow. My <laughs> it's, been gosh. A, it's been a long time. I mean, that's not that I counted every one. It's just that I did sort of an average of, I looked at some of my 
studio backups like for various years and then I looked at how many books I'd done and I sort of extrapolated um I've been working on books since 2008 that's when I got that job mm, okay. uh working for the Foundation for the Blind so it's been a it's been a minute one project that I did here will go way back to 2010 I did this one really cool project called Until Tuesday that was a veteran who had had um two tours in Iraq and he got a traumatic brain injury um, and he came back home and he had to, you know, rehabilitate and he got this service dog that just sort of changed his whole life. And it was a really great book. And it was also a really cool project because the dog came with him into the booth. Oh, wow. So yeah, he, he, he author narrated it. So he had, he was not an actor. He had never narrated before. And just due to his disability, he needed to have, you know, the dog with him in the booth. And so it was a really interesting experience. And the dog was amazing. She made no noise at all because, you know, service dogs are super well-trained. It's part of their deal. Um, but it was just a really unique experience. And to direct, you know, I've done a lot of author directs since, author reads since, but this one was just sort of stuck out for me. And we were Audie nominated too. So that was just really cool. To see him show up to the Audis uh, with Tuesday, the dog. That was the dog's <laughs> name. We didn't win, sadly, but it was just a really amazing project. So even 10 years later, I still think about that sometimes. And then just so many others. I mean, this past year, right before I came on officially with Serial Box, because I'd been working with them freelance for a number of years already before that. Uh, last year, I worked on the Blunder Woman uh, Me Too anthology. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, we participated in Me Too. And that was really, really cool because there were just so many stories that resonated so deeply and so many narrators, you know, that were really amazing got to participate. And also, um, for my part, we made original music for it, which was really cool because so I, I created this theme and then we got. Uh, I made like a little temp track so people could know the the tune. And we got actors from all over the country. I sent them like the temp track and they recorded themselves singing. And then I combined them all into one track. So we had like a chorus of voices. Oh, I'm always amazed by that. It was so much fun and people did such a great job. And I was amazed that it actually worked, to be honest. <laughs> I, think, I was like, I don't know if all these will mix together and it'll work. But it, it worked great. You know, it's amazing how many actors are also musicians and, and can do so well at that. And, um, and yeah, we went to the Audis, uh, just a few weeks ago and we also didn't win, but <laughs> you know what they say about it being an honor just to be nominated is really true. Cause you get, to, you go there and you have the whole experience and you get to, to be all together. And especially with such a big group of people who all worked on this thing, it was a really amazing experience. Um, and, and Tanya really did a lot to make sure that we could all be there. And that was really cool of her as well. So those are my non-Serial Box projects that I think about a lot. And then with Serial Box, it's all been really, really fun too. What are some typical projects you work on at Serial Box? Well, the great thing about Serial Box is that it's a lot like audiobooks. I mean, they basically are audiobooks, but they change it up a little bit where instead of having chapters of a book that all release at once, we have episodes. So it's kind of like a season of a TV show. Uh, So every week, a new episode will come out. And there's usually somewhere between 10 to 16 episodes total. Um, So it gives you kind of that TV feel, but also an audiobook feel because it's audio only, there's no visual. But we do add 
sound design and musical themes to all the originals. We distribute some things. We have some earlier projects that don't have the sound design and music, but all of our originals now do. So it's really cool for me to be able to bring various skill sets together, you know, um, the audiobook stuff, obviously, and then also my original degree, which is, you know, the music composition and also a lot of the sound designing things that I learned when I was working in film and TV. So in a weird way, it feels like everything kind of coming together. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. And, uh, and I, I absolutely you. love those full audio productions. It really adds so much more atmosphere to it. Yeah. I mean, I think I hear it's, it's one of those things that you, a lot of people fall very strongly on one side or the other. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've had some people say, well, I don't listen to audiobooks because it's just people talking and whatever. I don't blah, blah, blah. And then you'll have other people who say like, don't ever put music and effects in audiobooks. Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously I don't agree with either of those things because I've worked extensively with, with both kinds of products. I think that it just has to be done like anything it has to be done well. Absolutely. I've actually listened to some projects where it was kind of a mishmash of both. And those are the ones that I find jarring. If it's one or the other, then it's not a problem. And what's weird is we are kind we are kind of in the middle, though, because most of our things, they're not radio plays. They're still single narrator. So it's like I like to call it like enhanced audio or immersive audio because it's not you, you still have one actor playing all the parts, but there's just like sort of an enhancement of that. Like, it's not like you don't still need to use your imagination. Like, of course you do, but it just gives you a little bit extra without getting in the way. Um, Very cool. I like that. You can, you can brand that new category for us. Yeah. But, but we're so happy that you found, like you said, this work that was really just a perfect marriage of all of your previous skills. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I, I really, really enjoy it. I love working for them. Um, I, I had been working with them freelance since like 2015, so it's been been a minute. And I didn't think, once I went freelance, I enjoyed that so much and the hustle and, and everything that I never thought I would go full-time again. But it was just the right, sometimes when the right person or the right group asks, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we joked about it a little bit before we got on the interview, but how has the current COVID climate affected your workflow? <laughs> um. I think that we've been a lot more fortunate than some people, but it definitely has affected. I think that I did have, you know, there have been, there's been some scrambling when people don't have home studios, you know, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people who work solidly in the audiobook world do, because that's sort of been a thing for audiobook narrators for a while, but it's not necessarily as true for a lot of voiceover artists and other groups. And some of the people that we cast occasionally um, aren't primarily audiobook narrators just because we like to widen the pool a little bit in terms of who we hire and who we bring on. So that's been something that I've had to navigate a little bit. Um, You know, I've been lending out foam and mics and things as necessary (laughs) to try to (laughs) come together with Hope Studios and uh, luckily, I think we have a really supportive community. So even when there have been times where it's been rough, there's usually, there's almost always somebody there to help pick up some of the slack. I think luckily the kind of equipment that we need is obscure enough that there's not a huge run on it. <laughs> so I think a lot of people have been able to sort of get stuff shipped to them and get going with their home studios if they didn't have one yet. So no time like the present on that, I guess. Is it tougher in New York? I've noticed some, we're both members of some Facebook groups that are primarily New York talent-based, and I've noticed some 
some questions and some posts there that seem really rudimentary because I think there's people who never, ever had to record yeah. anything at home now and they're really struggling, right? Yeah. I mean, to some degree, the people who are spread out over the country have a leg up, right? Because they always had to have home studios because there are no studios really out there. But New York has tons of recording studios. So it's probably one of the few places uh, where people have gone their whole careers without ever having to have a home studio. Or lots of people. I mean, I was a freelance recording engineer in New York for some time. So, and I got a lot of work doing that. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of talent, particularly people who've been doing this for a long time, like 20 years or so, who just never needed to have a home studio. Um, so yeah, there are some questions that are pretty, pretty low level. And, and look, not, that's not to denigrate anyone. Like everybody has to start somewhere. Right. But yeah, I think that to some degree, people who live in major markets who've been doing this for a long time are actually at a disadvantage right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things I actually did to try to combat that a little bit, because I've getting a I've been getting a lot of people coming to me and asking me questions. I'm sure. And I really want to answer all of them. But like I said, like we've been fortunate enough that my work hasn't really slowed down. <laughs> so I don't have extra you know, time to go over that. But I did make a Google Doc. And if anybody listening is interested in getting a link to that, I can definitely send where me, me. I've been trying to get yeah, a list of, of out-of-work recording engineers in New York, because there are a lot of freelance recording engineers who – because they have that knowledge and that experience being a recording engineer could help people create their home studios. Um, because, you know, George Whittem and Tim Tippett and all them can't take everybody. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, I know that they're slammed just like I am. So I thought and some of these people, local freelancers. <laughs> yeah. These people have been missing out of work. They have the knowledge. They know how studios and microphones and all that work. Um, and they're just sort of waiting they don't, you know, they don't work right now. So I thought I made a list and there are already about 30 names on it. Just FYI. Oh, so if anybody wants that list, uh, I've been posting it in various places, but they can definitely contact me and I'll send it to them. Yeah. Send it to us. We'll put it on our Facebook page as well because uh, For sure. we could definitely help. I think Sean is in a similar boat where people are reaching out to us too, because I think they, they seem to think we know what we're talking about. And <laughs> I've been answering questions all week from talent trying to get up to speed also. Yeah, me too. I mean, yeah. I've gotten like literally a hundred Facebook requests in the last week and they're just like, they all want to know what mic to use. How do I set yeah. up my space? And I'm just like, look guys, I, I know enough to get in trouble. So like, it's, uh, I don't want to get them in trouble either. I mean, we're, we're hobbyists and yes, we have competitive home studio setups, but we don't consider ourselves engineers by any means. So we'd be happy to share that list. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of uh, a lot of the names on there were people that I know. Um, and I did also add a column so that they have to have a referral name. So it's not just like there. there's a little there's a layer of vetting in there. There we go. Um, so that if you talk to someone and they don't you can call the person who referred them and be like, what the hell, man? Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> um, your rep on the line, too. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just, you know, I figured that that would we do something like that for the freelancers spreadsheet in the ACX group, which I'm an admin of. And I just thought that it would be a nice sort of compliment to that. Um, but, yeah, definitely check those people out. They can help you. Um, and I know that was an answer to a question you asked, but now I forget what the question was. <laughs> well, you've actually, you've actually segued quite nicely into our next question in that, as we've talked about, a lot of talent are jumping in now and maybe even not seeking out help from you or, or a professional and setting up a USB mic behind a cardboard uh, reflection filter and saying, all right, I'm all good. What, why do you think that's a bad idea to, to jump in and skimp on the tech? 
I mean, it's always a bad idea, right? Uh, and, and the sad thing is, is that's happening all the time, regardless of COVID. But it is happening more now. And I think that there's another edge to it right now where you have a little bit of desperation because there are a lot of people out there who their usual revenue streams have all of a sudden dried up. And that's really scary. And I get that. And everybody wants to hustle and find a way to mitigate that. Um, but like a lot of fields where people have expertise, this is so much more complicated than people realize oh, initially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, you know, you really just have to take, it's a business, it's starting a business. And I think that in a lot of entertainment and arts fields, people forget that. Um, and they forget that, you know, if you were starting a restaurant, say, you know that it doesn't make any profit for the first year, at least like that's just a given. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that's really a given for almost any business, um, including if you're starting a voiceover business or an audiobook business, um, you can't you can't do it quick and on the cheap. That's just not. If you could, everybody would, right? Right. Um, yeah. It's like we all know the basic ways to to get fit, right? But we're still looking for pills and and magical exercises that only take six minutes. Because the truth is, we don't want to exercise for like forty five minutes a day and not eat potato chips. At least I would prefer not to do that. Um, <laughs> when will they make magic potato chips? I know, right? Uh, but it, it's like anything else that's worth doing. It takes knowledge and time mm. and work, and it's just not going to happen in a couple of weeks. I see this all the time now. That's just like, well, I can't invest in this. And I'm just like, minimal investment, minimal return. It's just, yeah. it, it is really frustrating. But you're right. The, people are in desperate times and are just trying to grasp at straws at any possibility to get income coming in. Yeah, and I think... Also, for some reason, in the in the VO world at large, there's this perception that audiobooks are easy. Oh yeah, and I <laughs> I don't know why because I think they're actually probably the hardest genre of of voice acting because first of all, there's the part everybody knows about the endurance, right? I mean, it's a marathon. Um, and if you don't think that, like, just go and try to read a couple pages without stopping at all. Like, it's really hard. Even for most voice actors, that's hard um, if they don't do long form on a regular basis. Um, and secondly, you have to play an entire cast of characters. And there's really no other genre where that's true, not even animation. Um, in animation, you'll occasionally have gender bending when, like, a woman plays a kid, you know, maybe a young boy or something like that. But in audiobooks, everybody plays everybody. So, because, yeah, and you have to give them, I mean, there's, there are so much contradicting style advice about like how much of a character voice to give characters in a book, right? Like there's no one right answer to that. So I'm not going to get into that too much, but you are still playing a cast of characters and things like accents and backgrounds and all that come up that you would never be cast visually to ever play or even in other voiceover auditions. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's maybe just the illusion of accessibility. I mean, with things like ACX, you can really just sign up. Like, it's, that's true. it's free, and, like, there's no real vetting process uh, until you have to give them the first 15. But still, like, I mean, people just sign up without any previous acting background, without a home studio. And they're like, oh, this is easy. And they might even land a few projects. And then they have to figure everything out after the fact. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. It's really easy to land bad work yeah and a lot of that hopefully is being dismissed by 
ACX's new policies on the code farmers, but yeah. up until the last couple of weeks, it was really easy to land a bad job that may have been a complete scam book. And I think that's where part of the illusion comes from, too. And that, that's the thing. It's easy to give things away, right? Like if you stand on a corner handing out flyers, a lot of people are going to take them, even though they don't even know what it is or why you're there. And that's basically, you know, the issue here where it's like there's a there's a way to do that. And it gives people the illusion of, oh, people are taking my stuff. They might like it. And you're like, well, they might or they might just be like, oh, it's free. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that is. Oh, it's nothing. OK, toss it out. <laughs> like, And that's what I want to caution people against. You know, people get really flattered when they get messages from rights holders who haven't even heard them read or audition. They're like, I want to cast you for my book. And that feels very nice to hear. But it doesn't mean anything if they're not serious about making money with the book. Because I'm not going to tell people that all royalty shares are bad. They're not. But it needs to be a serious endeavor, right? Like when you do accept a royalty share, you need to have questions that you ask this person to make sure that they're serious, that they're going to market the book, that there's a chance that you'll get your investment back. And if there's not, don't, you know, don't take the book. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like people are just so scared of losing those opportunities without doing that due diligence that they're just like, oh, I'll do it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. But it's not an opportunity if you're not going to gain anything, right? It's just you doing work for free for somebody. And I think that and I get it also, you know, as a musician, because I'm like we said, I'm not just an engineer. I understand wanting to get your work out there and how people have it hammered into them that exposure is good and all of that. But I really think that just as artists, we need to have more business sense and we need to to look at, for instance, a rights holder that's offering you a royalty share. They're not your boss. They're your business partner. And you have to make sure your business partner is pulling their own weight. Yeah. And getting your work out there doesn't always work. Even if you take a bad a bad book and put it out there, it doesn't mean anyone's going to buy it. No. The first book I ever did in 2015 has still sold only nine copies. And it actually is a good book, and I'm proud of the work, but nobody knows it's there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you can't learn something from projects, especially early on. Like, I do think on somebody's first book, no matter how much it sells or how good it is, they're going to learn something Mm -hmm. like it's sort of a a steep curve it's like in the beginning it's a exponential curve where everything you do teaches you something so i don't necessarily discourage people right at the beginning from taking whatever book because i think that it has it might have value just for teaching them how they work and if they even like doing this Mm -hmm. but if you're expecting to make money on it yeah i mean you have to look into that a little bit more like the codes thing recently i've been frankly i've been a little shocked how many people were considering free money in an integral part of their business plan I don't say that to be cold, but, you know, these codes, basically you were getting a royalty check for books that were being given away for free. Mm -hmm. So there's no profit being generated there. And while that's wonderful, and I would certainly take whatever money Amazon is leaving on the table, at the same time, you can't consider that. That's like finding $5 in the ground. You know, it's not part of your business revenue. That's really well put. All right. So switching gears a little bit, uh, just uh, I really wanted to ask this of you because you've been very candid about the challenges you faced as a woman trying to establish yourself in what many would consider to be a male dominant field. So would you mind sharing some of those challenges here? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'll tell you is that as of last year, uh, according to the Audio Engineering Society's data, the field is 95 percent male. Wow. So it's literally 5%. And that's that's a pretty current figure, at least within the last year or two. So 
it's very definitely male dominated. Uh, I've been really excited recently within the past like five years or so, how many female engineers I've started to meet. I didn't really know any when I was coming up in my early 20s. There just weren't any around. Internships I had, it would always, you know, I was always the only woman there. You know, it's funny. I, I now my brand is sort of like angry feminist, but I wasn't. A fe- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I know who I am. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to pretend that's not the case. I know it is. But what's funny is that I wasn't a feminist at all until about my mid to late twenties. Um, even though I went to Smith college, as you mentioned earlier, it's a woman's college. I went there because it's a very good school and it's 20 minutes from my house. Uh, and they gave me a lot of money. So it's not like, this has been my path all along. I had a lot of, I have a lot of male, uh, stereotypically male hobbies and obviously, you know, my job and all that. Uh, but then I went out into the world of this field and things started happening and I was like, Oh, this is what they were talking about. (laughs) 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 Like, uh, and so keep in mind, this wasn't too long ago, 2008, I had an internship or 2007, maybe right around there at a post house downtown. And it was, we had 11 interns, uh, me and 10 guys. And some people don't know this about audio engineering internships and a lot of entertainment internships in general, but because they're so competitive, they really get a lot out of you. So part of our job, even though we're there working for free, was to clean the entire studio. And I mean like toilets, everything. And we had to do that every day. for the privilege of being there and watching engineers work. Uh, and I was coming down in the elevator with the head engineer one night. Uh, I had stayed a little bit late to work on to work on a project we were working on. And he was complaining about the level of cleaning that we had done in the studio and how he didn't think it was acceptable. And he turns to me and he goes, well, you're a woman. Can you just teach the rest of them? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and, I kind of stood there for a minute and I was a little confused because it was just so like, I was like, is that a joke? Like, you know, I don't want to think like I don't have a sense of humor. So I like stand there for a beat and I look at him and I'm waiting for like the smile or the laugh or something like that. And it doesn't happen. And then I just sort of look at him and I go, yeah, you know, and then I could, uh, I could make you a sandwich after that. Would that be cool? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> and he just sort of looks at me and the elevator opens and I'm like, bye. Mm-hmm. I leave and I come back the next day and it turns out that he had complained about me and he tried to get me fired. Oh my um, God. And I ended up leaving anyway in a few weeks just because I got everything I needed out of the internship. But that sort of thing would happen a lot. I was a live sound engineer. Um, people would take gear right out of my hands. I had a couple of guys tell me straight out they would never hire a woman um, because they didn't think we could do the job. Yeah. And for really like stupid reasons, like, oh, well, you can't carry the gear. And I'm like, well, I can deadlift 205 pounds. So I'm it's pretty sure. Me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm not a small person. Like, I can, I can hang. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's irrational. So when I say it, it sounds almost like I'm like making it up or something. But it's crazy. It really happens. Like, I remember one of the things I left out of that last story about the, the guy in the elevator is that. I have this crystallized memory because I was about 24 or so, I think, when that happened, 24, 25, of looking at him and thinking, geez, I thought all of you were dead. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but turns out, no. Um, 
I will say the further I get in my career and as time goes by, it happens less and less for the most part. It doesn't happen that often to me anymore. And when it does, it's usually like smaller microaggressions, like people assuming that I don't know what I'm talking about. Or like when I go into a studio, you know, sometimes someone might assume that I'm not an engineer, that I'm like the actor or something like that. Just little things like that that aren't aren't such a big deal, but, you know they can be frustrating when they happen over and over again. Well, I think thankfully, uh, unfortunately, but also thankfully because of the, the Me Too crisis and, and all the things going on there, some people and people probably who were more attuned to the situation are now more aware of these things that have been happening for years and years and accept it. There are still those dinosaurs that will never believe those things happen to women. But I think people who who were more open to, to hearing those stories now believe them even more and, and are trying to change. I hope. That's kind of like a different angle too, though, right? Because those are two different things. Like you have the people, I, that's true. I guess I interpreted the question more on the side of people who think you can't do the work or that you're not good enough. But the the sexual harassment aspect of it is like a whole other side. And I mean, mm-hmm. I think pretty much every woman has stories of that too. Like I have people, I was at GDC one year, which is the game developers conference. Cause I do some, or I used to do some video game work here and there too. And I had a guy who was a well-known director who worked for Blizzard and a lot of big companies um, offer me work contingent on my coming back to his hotel room with him. Wow. Oh my gosh. And that was in 2015. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, you know, I was also wearing an engagement ring at the time. Not that that should matter, but, you know, stay classy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I think it should matter a little. It's just incredibly unfortunate because just listening to you talk, it's just, I mean, you're obviously very exceptional at what you do. And it's just, I mean, the field is suffering by kind of being closed-minded like that. Yeah, I mean, that said, I've also had a lot of people really go out of their way to help me and to be really great mentors. And I don't want to make it seem like I've had this, like, terrible trying career. I haven't. It's just I've actually been very lucky and I've met a lot of really wonderful people. But I'm not, you know, this is a thing that happens. And I think that people need to consider stuff like that and need to consider just not shrugging and thinking that it's no big deal. Like another instance that I think about, and this is sort of weird looking back in context, but I actually recorded a book with um, Gavin McGinnis back in like 2012. Uh, And for people who don't know, he's the leader of the Proud Boys, which is a pretty anti- woman organization among other things and he probably predictably at this point he wasn't the leader of the proud boys then so i had no idea who he was except for that he was a co-founder of vice but he was predictably at this point if you know anything about him pretty horrible to me and uh, i was in my late 20s you know i didn't i no one else was in the room i was engineering him by myself and he's making comments about like my body and things like that and i didn't know what to do so i went to my boss at the time and they were basically like we can put you can either power through or we can put a male engineer in the project Hmm. um and i didn't want to be taken off of a project you know that felt like a punishment so i just pushed through and i finished and at the time and this wasn't that long ago, you know, it's like maybe not even a full decade. I just considered that kind of the price of being in the field. 
you know, and getting the work done. And now it wasn't until I progressed in my field and I became a manager myself um, that I realized that that was a real breakdown of the chain of authority in that situation. And that I really hope that if I'd been put in a situation like that as a manager where somebody came to me, that I could make them feel as though they were being taken seriously and protected. To be frank, I find you to be a very inspiring person. And I, was, <laughs> and I was wondering, what words of advice or encouragement would you like to give to the next generation of aspiring female audio engineers? Wow. <laughs> that's such a heavy thing to like, that's such a big responsibility. Um, I guess just know your shit. Basically, like, just know more than everyone, <laughs> if you can. Like, attack everything that you learn about. Like, just attack it and consume it and know everything about it. Because I'm not going to say that my communication style is ideal. I know that I can come off a little harsh and a little brash sometimes to people. And there have been times when that hasn't necessarily worked in my favor. But I think that when you know what you're talking about and you are right, eventually, no matter what other stuff is in the situation, you know, no matter what other people you're working with that maybe aren't don't have your back or what other people are arguing with you or saying things about you if you know what you're talking about you always eventually turn out okay that's been my strategy anyway (laughs) awesome that's fantastic so switching gears a bit in spite of all the serious issues we just spoke about which are obviously important and i always appreciate your your take on it both in social media and uh, other times I've heard you speak. Thanks. I know you to be a happy person and having a, lot, having a lot of fun, both professionally and personally. So what are some of the crazy things you've done to cope with the COVID-19 crisis? <laughs> oh, man. I. So for the record, I am a happy person. I am so lucky to do what I do. Like, sometimes I just, yeah. Like, I I love all of it. And, you know, people be like, what are your hobbies? And I'm like, I don't really need any. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds scary and unhealthy. And it's not completely true. Like I have things that I do, but I also just love what I do so much. And like yesterday uh, for Machina, which is one of our, uh, one of our cereal box projects uh, that's narrated by Natalie Nottis, who, by the way, just kills it. She's super, super great. She's great. Yep. Love her. And it's about two rivaling companies that are trying to send the first, or trying to establish the first colony on Mars. Um, and sort of like an inside tech, you know, tech devs and stuff going back and forth. And they have one uh, character has a robotic dog. He owns a bar and he has a robotic dog. And then people can like program the dog to like do stuff. And in a recent episode that I was just sound sound designing, um, the robot dog speaks in Morse code barks. <laughs> Accurately, like you actually. I did. It out? I went. I went. I like went down a rabbit hole, and I went to like Morse code websites, and I oh couldn't. My gosh. I couldn't sound design the whole message because it was just too long, and Morse code is not exactly short. <laughs> yeah. Um, So it just didn't work for the timing to do the entire message. But the first word is actually real Morse code. That's awesome. And as a giant nerd who like looks stuff like that up when TV shows do it and it's, yeah, actually you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I really pride of the fact that if anyone tries to do that on this, they're going to be like, oh, it is Morse code. Oh, they will. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been writing a lot of themes lately. So that's been cool too for all our stuff coming 
up. So I had one, and I'm not going to say which one yet because it hasn't released yet, but there was one I did that was very rock and roll, um, but I was writing it and doing all the, the MIDI work in my headphones, but every so often I would just yell out to try to like get into it before I played down the part, you know, one, two, three, four. And I just kept imagining my neighbors being like, why is she counting? What comes after? <laughs> what comes after the counting? We don't know. <laughs> Does she have a composure? <laughs> right. So just little things like that, and I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm already kind of a hermit. I think I come off really extroverted, especially on the internet, and I I go to mixers and stuff like that here and there. But to be honest, I spend I already spend the majority of my time uh, locked in my living room talking to myself. So it's uh, more of that. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and it, like loving with you do is just so important because it gets you through the hard times as well and the dry times. Anyways, kind of keeping the light flow going. So under normal circumstances, what are some of your favorite New York boroughs? Like any cool eateries you like to visit there or might even call up on DoorDash now? Uh, so I live in Brooklyn and I live in a neighborhood called Windsor Terrace, which is kind of Park Slope adjacent. Um, for anyone who knows New York, Park Slope is kind of a, a ritzy Brooklyn neighborhood that I can't afford to live in. So I live, <laughs> next, <laughs> I live next to it. Um, let's see. In terms of food, uh, in my neighborhood, there's this place called East Wind Snack Shop that's really tasty. They basically just have dumplings and like bubble tea. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which are both amazing. So, you know, um, and that place is really good. I don't know if they're actually open right now. That's been one thing with with uh, the virus is a lot of some places are doing delivery, but some places who it wasn't super feasible for have just closed, uh, which is a bummer. Mm, yeah. And, and I hope that a lot of them can make it through this time because food is one of the best things about New York. Um, so I really love Brooklyn. I've lived in New York for 13 years. Um, actually in June, it'll be 14 years. Jeez. Wow. And yeah. And, uh, I've lived in Brooklyn that entire time. Um, not in the same place in Brooklyn, but various Brooklyn neighborhoods. Um, so I don't know if I have a fair accounting of the boroughs, but obviously I love Brooklyn and Queens has some great food too. Like if in the Queens Chinatown, you can find a lot of really good food, Mexican and sunset park in Brooklyn's really good. I just like food, man. <laughs> yeah, me too. And that's that I wrote that question even though Sean asked it because that's my favorite thing about New York too is just finding new places to eat every time. So it's awesome. Yeah, it's one of the things about New York is that the best of whatever it is is often here. I'm not going to say <laughs> I'm not going to say it's ex- it's like accessible to everybody, but um, and, and there are certain things that geographically, like, look, the West Coast has better sushi than we do. I'm sorry, but they just do. Um, <laughs> Thank you, know. you for that. No. I mean, it, it, it's just true. Like, I, I wish it wasn't, but it is. I've 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 had some amazing sushi over there. And I was like, oh, right. Um, that's what they're talking about. Uh, but in Mexican, too. Like, we, ha- we do have some good Mexican here. But I'd say in, like, you know, the L.A. area, as for obvious reasons, they're right next to Mexico. But we do have a really high level of almost any kind of food you could want, which, you know, I come from rural New England, as you guys said earlier, and I never even had sushi until I was in college. And I didn't even know I was, I was such a rube. I tried to take a bite out of a sushi roll. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. 
Well, that's not uncommon. <laughs> First time I had sushi in New York with some friends. Uh, I'm not even from a small town. I'm from Philadelphia. But the first time I had sushi in New York, I had some edamame, and I tried to put the whole thing in my mouth like a sugar snap pig. Oh, no. And they were like, what are you doing? No, no, don't eat that part. I had no idea. <laughs> I might have done that, too. And I'm really food adventurous, too. Like in September, I went to Ethiopia to do some field recording. That was that was really, really fun. Um, so I was up in the mountains in Ethiopia, like 13,000 feet up, like a 10 hour drive from, you know, the major city. And, you know, when they see someone who looks like me, a lot of people are like, Oh, here's some Western food. I'm like, please don't give me that. What are you eating? I want to eat that. It's probably better. And I just love going places and eating all their food. basically. <laughs> <laughs> so. One of our favorite pastimes as well. You and I are of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to how you, you love what you do. Yeah. Let's talk about some, some, fantasy projects if you could engineer any current or past musicians album who would it be uh-huh. tough one i know you know to be completely honest i'm not much of a studio music engineer it's not it's probably the thing i have the least experience in i've done live sound music and i mean i do i mix and create my own music but that's that's an interesting question because it's not something i've done a lot of um hmm well, we can we can pass. I mean, probably I'd want to work on a film music album. Okay, past or past or present film you wish you had scored or would like to score? Anything Star Trek related. There awesome. we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing you might have noticed. Um, occasionally, my my Facebook profile photo is a picture of me in a in a science officer uniform, circa next gen. Uh, that's something I really love. I'm a big, um, huge Star Trek fan so so second season of picard right second season of picard is in production if you're listening uh contact amanda (laughs) yes yes um yeah that would probably be that would probably be the main thing i am very jealous of jeff russo right now who's scoring picard (laughs) so yeah going back to how you're occupying your time when you're not doing your work so what are some current tv or web shows that you like to binge watch (laughs) um Let's see. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Steven Universe mm. recently. Brilliant. Um, I know it just ended. I hadn't seen it for whatever reason. I knew a lot of people that I liked liked it. It's just, you know, there's so much TV that sometimes you just don't get around to things for a while. But my husband, Patrick, and I have been binging it lately over the past like week or so. And I love it. It's such an adorable and hilarious show. Um and then there's the usual stuff that I binge periodically, like obviously Star Trek and uh, Parks and Rec. Nice. Uh, <laughs> last Saturday, like much of the world right now, it seems, I binged the entire Tiger King documentary. Mm. Oh, I, I don't even know if I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't usually like like reality shows or crime docs, but it was just so ridiculous. Like... <laughs> Like watching a train wreck in slow motion. Yeah, I mean, at one point, like you're going along a certain track, and then they're like, and then he ran for president. You're like, what? <laughs> like, what? How is that? Yeah, that's part of it. Hmm. Um, and he he makes uh, condoms with his face on them for like mm. campaign gifts, and I was just like, like it's just you can't look away, right? It's just so nuts. But it's this weird, perfect storm, because frankly, if we weren't in the situation we're in now, where 
we don't even have the option to leave because not not to I want to keep this in a light place and so not to bring it too far down but I have two underlying conditions so for me it's like super important I mean it's super important for everybody to stay home but it's like even more important that I really shouldn't go out um, mm -hmm. if I can help it this is just a long way of saying I don't think I would have watched it otherwise uh, gotcha I don't think you're the only one it, it, it wouldn't have been a phenomenon it is if it wasn't during this week yeah yeah that's exactly what I mean is it like and it was totally like a peer pressure thing where I was on Facebook, I think that Friday and just everybody was like, Tiger King, Tiger King, Tiger King. I was like, what is happening? And I just turned it on while I was, you know, on the internet or doing whatever um, on that Saturday, not expecting to watch that much of it. And <laughs> before I knew it, the whole five hours was over. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> I just watched that whole thing. <laughs> this is so meme worthy but uh yeah and uh just ending on a light note i just love that people in their 30s and older it's perfectly acceptable nowadays to just binge watch animation it wasn't always the case but yeah but anyways amanda i mean this has been such a joy to have you on the podcast and we just wanted to know if there's anything else you wanted to say before you wrap up or how can people follow you in your work oh well as you two i'm sure know i'm super active on facebook uh that's probably where I interact the most. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's just uh, Lady Soundsmith. It's my handle. And but I'm really only on there periodically. I'm trying to be better at Twitter. I guess this is like to some degree an age thing, right? Like my old millennial self like hit Facebook right right at the right time. Um, I was halfway through college when it came out, so that's just sort of where I landed. And Twitter came out like a few years later and um, it just feels a little like screaming into the void for me. So yep, yep, feel that. <laughs> I have a hard time. <laughs> on Facebook I feel like I can have a conversation and on Twitter I just feel like I'm like, ah um, and then I'm sometimes on Instagram, but it's kind of the same thing as Twitter. So basically <laughs> if you wanna if you want to talk to me or yell at me or whatever you want to do, Facebook's probably the best bet. Or you can send me an email. My email is just amandarosemith at gmail.com. Cool. And uh, listeners, check out Serial Box. It sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm really proud of the work we're doing. And we're also offering a lot of things at discounted rates um, and some things even for free during you know this time where everybody has to stay at home. So definitely. And we've been doing – oh, on Instagram, we've been doing live readings uh, Neil Helligers, who is amazing, uh, just did one for us last night. And usually you can sample the first episodes of all of our stuff for free, too. So there's a lot of stuff there if people are looking for more content to binge. And just to make sure people know, because it's a clever play on words, it's Serial, S-E-R-I-A-L, yeah. box. So don't yeah. you're, you're not looking for Lucky Charms, it's Serial, because they're Serial episodes. It's clever. <laughs> Exactly. I'm glad you did that because I often have to, to make that point too to make sure people find us. So yeah. All right. Well, Amanda, as Sean said, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for being here and stay safe out there. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. You guys are wonderful. And uh, yeah, thanks. How many times has this happened to you? You're listening to the radio when this commercial comes on, not unlike this one. And this guy starts talking, not unlike myself. Or maybe it's a woman that starts talking. Not unlike myself. And you think to yourself, geez, I could do that. Well, mister, well, missy, you just got one step closer to realizing your dream as a voiceover artist. Because now there's Global Voice Acting Academy. All the tools and straight-from-the-hip, honest information you need to get on a fast track to doing this commercial yourself. 
Well, not this one exactly. Classes, private coaching, webinars, home studio setup, marketing and branding help, members-only benefits like workouts, rate and negotiation advice, practice scripts, and more. All without the kind of hype you're listening to right now. Go ahead, take our jobs from us. We dare you. Speak for yourself, buddy. I like what I do. And you will, too, when you're learning your craft at Global Voice Acting Academy. Find us at globalvoiceacademy.com. Because you like to have fun. All right. Thank you so much for being a guest, Amanda. Man, we really covered the gamut, didn't we? That conversation went into strange new places. (laughs) Yeah, it was awesome, though. And I really liked showcasing Amanda's personality because I feel like she gets a bad rap on, on Facebook and other social media. But she really is a lovely person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I definitely felt like we were kindred spirits. And if you want to check out more of her work, once again, you can find her at Serial Box. That's S-E-R-I-A-L box.com. So that pretty much wraps up this episode of the VO Meter. Measuring your voice over progress. We have a pretty cool episode coming up next. Not that they're all cool. You know that by now. But we're going to be talking about dual and duet narration with... A pair of narrators have teamed up on over 15 audiobooks together, Jeffrey Kafer and Heather Costa. Well, we hope you guys look forward to that. It was a great interview. We certainly enjoyed recording it. Thanks for listening, and we hope to hear you on the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the VO Meter. To follow along, visit us at www.vometer.com. We'd also love to hear your comments or suggestions for the show. Or if you have a questionable gear purchase, tell us all about it on our Facebook page or on Twitter at the VO Meter. <laughs>